Amen. Am, am I good? Good. Well, hey, you know, before I want to introduce my family one more time, but as I was sitting there worshiping with you guys, I just thought, what a privilege it is to be in a place where we can worship God under the leadership of a team like this um, that allows us to sing with all of our heart uh, to the King of Kings and for His glory. What an honor. And it reminded me of a story. Can I, you, the, the problem with me only coming once or twice a year is that you uh, get uh, three sermons in one. Is that okay? So I have all these things I want to share with you. But it reminded me of a, um, an experience that I had actually when Annie, right after Annie was born. And I was able to visit Hong Kong. And I was at a conference there, and in the conference were some Chinese believers who, I mean, it's interesting, my, my daughter Molly just got back from China, but there were some Chinese believers who um, uh, lived in the underground church, and their experiences were such that they could not corporately gather um, officially um, without being persecuted. And so their experience was meeting in homes or in the forest or in different secret locations um, to study the Word of God and to share the life of Christ. But when it came to public or corporate worship, they couldn't sing at the top of their lungs because they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. And so what they had to do when they came together was sing like this. And they would look with their eyes open and they would worship Jesus. So that when we came to the conference, and I was singing the songs, whatever popular hill songs that were happening that year, or whatever cool worship team or group that was in for us contemporary American Christians, uh, and just kind of going through the motions. I mean, I'm a worshiper, so I wasn't totally going through the motions, but I, I was in some part taking for granted the experience that I was having. And I looked around and I saw these Chinese believers just with tears streaming out of their eyes. Actually, the reason that I looked around is because I heard, um, I'll sing the song that we were just singing. I heard um, to my left somebody singing really loudly, Hallelujah! Yelling and screaming. And I'm like, come on, dude, be a little bit more appropriate. You know, kind of be a part of the choir. You're a little bit loud. And I look over and it's these Chinese believers that for the first time were able to, with their voices, declare the love that they had for Jesus. I share that to say, let us not ever forget that every moment of this service is significant when we respond to the Lord. That every opportunity that we have to worship to listen to the Word of God, to shake hands and fellowship with one another, to pray for one another. All of them are significant um, responses of heartfelt um, worship of God. Amen? My beautiful family, stand up. Laura kept our two youngest in so that I could introduce them. Isaac, come here for a second. Just for, for those of you who don't know, three years ago when we planted the river, um, God also planted a seed in my wife's womb. And so, uh, this is little Isaac. He is actually the age of the River Church. So, say hello to Isaac, my youngest. This is Samuel. Samuel, turn around. Samuel is about to turn 10. I've got, I'll come back to you later. This is Jonathan, who is 14. Annie, who is 17, 16, 17. Beautiful, awesome. How old you are. 
And Molly, who is 18, and um, actually, um, I, I, I am sad to say this and excited to say it all at the same time. But just a second, you can keep on standing up. Molly will be worshiping with you in the fall as she attends Harvard, so you'll, you'll get my daughter Molly. And then my beautiful wife of 20, almost 21 years of marriage, Laura, right there in the middle. You couldn't tell which one was my wife. They're all so young looking, but that's my wife right there. So give it up for my family. Now, kids, you can go to class if you want to. Isaac, about 30 minutes ago, looked at us and said, can I go to class now? So you can go now. It is, it is so weird being here. I mean, this, this pulpit, I remember when Adam Reed made this um, uh, for us as we were, uh, when he was tired of looking at music stands, so he uh, made this, this stand for us. But, huh? I, that's what I said, Adam Reed, yeah, Adam Reed. Oh, yeah. Oh, who is Adam Reed? Yeah, who is Adam Reed? Adam Reed is now at the, in the Tempe Church, is their worship pastor, and oversees their singles ministry there. Yeah, wow. So what a, what a weird deal. It's been three years um, since our team um, launched the River Church out of this, this fellowship, and what great memories. I'm, I'm thinking about, can, can I just walk down memory lane with you, just a few of you? Just for those of you who don't know these memories, can I, I just was writing them down. Ten years of my life were spent in this gym, so there's a lot of, a lot of memories for me. Uh, I, I remember with fondness just setting up the, the service and tearing it down, you know, all the chairs. I'm just getting basically like, oh, really? <laughs> Rolling the broken carts back and forth to the monster in the back room. It's just the monster heater. Um, some are refinishing the floors. Have they re- refinished the gym floors yet? That'll come this summer, and the smell of the wonderful smell of the refinishing of the floors. And who, who knows Mike, the janitor? I mean, come on, Mike, the janitor, awesome, um, awesome servant who's been with us all these years. Ten years of gym signs, like you know, don't run, be nice, safety first. You know, everybody's wondering when people come and visit the church if they wonder if we're putting up those signs for them. You know, I want you to be nice here. This is a church. No cussing. <laughs> so awesome. Uh, cookouts out on the parking lot. You know, college cookouts and hot dogs. Pastor dunking booths. It's just awesome out there. Halloween's in here. World mandates and counter nights. Some of our best world mandates were in this gym. Some of your lives were changed and transformed through those times. Children down this hall, children down this hall, children up there, children down there, children everywhere. Never know where the children are going to be. Uh, hey, by the way, I walked in. What awesome signs. What an awesome entryway. You're doing a great job making this thing look awesome. Way better than when I was here. It's fantastic. Awesome worship. Do you think I like the word awesome? Awesome worship. Awesome preaching. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, impactful ministry. It was a great place. But one thing that I can say, um, seriously, one thing I can say is that this church continues to have a, an incredible, um, heartfelt, deep love for God. That there is a warm, it's still such a warm and inviting place. I feel so welcomed, so, feel so much like family, such a, su- such a vibrant, loving connect with one another, and a zealous desire to preach the gospel to preach the good news of Jesus. And that all starts from the top. It starts with your leadership. It starts with Jeff Bianchi, his wife Sarah, your staff, your faith group leaders. You're awesome. I love it. I love being here. So thank you for letting me be a part. 
And I'm excited that Jeff is able to be at the river this week. We are swapping pulpits, so Jeff is telling all of his stories about me, I'm sure, and um, loving on every person in the room and uh, sharing the Word of God with grace and boldness. I'm so excited about him being at the river this morning. Can I tell you a story? Um, I've got all my, all my hellos out of the way. Can I tell you a story about me when I'm eight, and it's about an enemy? Yes, indeed. I had enemies when I was eight, and my chief enemy was really old. He was nine. His name was Johnny, and Johnny was, um, um, Johnny was big. I remember when I looked at him, he blocked out the sun. And I was small. My feet dangled. Um, my feet dangled on the bus seats. I could never put my feet on the on the floor because I was so short. He was mean, and of course I was nice. He was intimidating, and I was intimidated. Johnny had my number. He lived in the same area that I lived in, so we had time together. We had loving time together before bus rides, on the bus, and after the bus ride. And I'm being sarcastic when I say loving. He was. Uh, not intent on building me up. Johnny was intent on tearing me down. And I don't know if, if any of you are like this in the room, but for those of you who have been intimidated uh, by somebody, and you have no way, at least in your mind, of getting back, you plot and plan internally. I mean, I'm not trying to stir up any kind of bad behavior in here, but I can tell you at eight years old, I was devising ways to pay Johnny back. Anger was building in my life. I, I didn't like him. I, I, I cowered around him when he was at the butt, but I was, I just, oh, Johnny. I, even now it's starting. My blood is starting to, Lord, please forgive Johnny. And um, so um, in that plotting and planning, one perfect moment came up. It's not like I knew the perfect moment, but sometimes when the perfect moment happens, you just know that it's happening, right? Johnny and I had had our pleasantries, um, our pleasant exchanges, not on the bus that day. And um, I had walked in front of him, and I was walking towards the stairs down the bus, and as I was about to take that first step, he does the typical pushes me in the shoulder, you know, thing, you know, just to kind of let me know that he was behind me. And when he pushed my shoulder, something snapped. Something in me arose. It was like Mighty Sean um, emerged. It was like, this is the day of destruction. You know, it's, I, it, all crystal clear plans had come into place. I step down the steps. I, I go around, and as he kind of, kind of chuckles as he walks past me, probably gave me another shoulder bump as he walks around. I, as he turns and gets in front of me, I jump onto him and start pounding him from behind in his face. He was so shocked. Remember, Johnny Big, Sean Little, Johnny Me, Sean Nice. It was completely reversed, and I was a monster. I tackled him. By the time we got down, we were in the middle of the highway. I was boom, 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 boom. He was like, what is going on? I was so happy that I had taken Johnny down. My dad, I, I totally believe that he would have been the next roadkill in the, in the highway if my dad had not grabbed me by the back of the neck with one side of his face smiling and one side of his face serious as a dad should be in this moment, you know, and he, and he rescues Johnny from Mighty Sean. I was, for a day, in that moment, the victor. I had exacted my revenge. I won. 
or did I? We'll come back to that story. Whew! Even that memory gets me going. Johnny the enemy. We all have enemies, don't we? We all have enemies, and hopefully those enemies, plural, are getting fewer, and we are recognizing that really we have an enemy. We have an enemy, all of us. We are currently in a series entitled Rebuilding the Walls, and I'm sure that Jeff has done a good job um, ramping up the context of this passage of Scripture and this story for you. And so for sake of time, and because I have a lot to share with you, I'm not going to touch on it other than to say that the children of Israel are back in Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. And they are, at, at the present time in our, in our journey through Nehemiah in chapter 4, they are in the process of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. This wall symbolizes the glory of God, right? When the wall is established and God is glorified and honored, it symbolizes to the people around them that God's presence and authority and, and strength is among the people of Israel. And it signifies protection. You know, a wall in and of itself for a city was, a, was a, a, a part, a major part of protecting the people from the enemy on the outside. And we've been studying how when our walls fall down in our life, both personally and corporately, um, not only is the glory of God diminished in our life, but the enemy has an ability to traffic and distract us and discourage us and maybe even defeat us from the plans that God has for us. Amen? That's where we're at. I'm assuming that last week, if, if Jeff preached from his notes that he sent to me, that um, he talked about the lies of the enemy, that he talked about how, um, out of chapter 4, these the specific lies that Tobias and Sanballat and the different ones spoke over the children of Israel and their enemies, how that is similar to the enemy uh, of our lives, Satan, and how we can fight and, and, and fight off the lies of the enemy and be victorious. And in, in some senses, he talked of a defensive strategy last week. This, this morning, I want to talk about an offensive strategy. Would you look at me, look with me at Nehemiah 2. We're going to just go backwards just a second, kind of introduce these characters. When Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials heard about this, heard about the walls being rebuilt, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And then verse 19, they replied, let us, this is actually the children of Israel replying to Nehemiah, let us start rebuilding. And so they began to rebuild the wall. And when Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. And we, um, they said, what are you doing? Are you re rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Who are these three men? Um, historically, Sambalat was probably a part of a, of a group of governors or leaders to the north in Samaria. Tobiah was uh, a, a slave or a servant of a, of a different people from the people of Israel. And Geshem was probably the governor of uh, an area south of Jerusalem. These were, in a sense, if we we're just to read the story and understand it from our context, these were the enemies of the people of God. They were against the establishment of God's reign and rule again in Jerusalem. And our question is, who is our enemy? Right? When we read the scripture, we're saying, God, what is it that you're speaking to me out of this passage of scripture? How do we contextualize what's going on with them? And the same is true through Tobias and Ballot and in Geshem as it is to us today that sometimes God uses, I mean, sometimes our enemy, the devil, Satan, even saying that word in our culture is like 
elicits in some people like either a chuckle or a, are you going to really talk about the devil? Because we have in our minds some cartoonish character of a pitchfork and a red-faced um, um, person that is a figment of our imagination or some literary character in some great novel, but we don't realize that Satan is real. He is a real enemy. He's a real enemy of our lives. He is not on the same plane as God. He is not God's enemy. God created Satan. He doesn't have the power that God has. He doesn't have the authority that God has. God's not afraid of him. God crushes Satan under his heel. There's no yin and yang in God and Satan. But for you and me, he is our enemy. He wants to destroy your life. He's not just a pitchfork cartoon character, but he wants to kill you. He wants to abuse you. He wants to ridicule you. He wants to destroy your plans and your purposes. He wants to stop you before you start. He hates your guts. He has wicked and evil and mean plans for your life. And he has a whole army of demons at his disposal. And when he gets into the minds and hearts of humans who are not submitted to God, he uses humans to carry out his plans. That is the devil. And he is our enemy. Amen? Anybody want to acknowledge that? You have an enemy. For us not to realize that is a problem. John 10.10, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the father of lies, John 8.44. He's the one who tempts Jesus in the desert, and he tempts us and tries to destroy our lives in Revelations 12. 1 Peter 5 says that we're to be sober-minded, to be watchful, because our our adversary, the devil, roams around and prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is also not some goofball, um, some apparent enemy that we're going to recognize when we see him, but the Scripture says that he is one who disguises himself as the angel of light, 2 Corinthians, which means that he is very clever and aware of how he is to present himself to you so that you think that he or his plans are good when they are really destructive. We live in a culture that has taken the lies of the enemy and has twisted them to make them look like they're the truths of God so that we would in turn employ or deploy the tactics and the schemes of the enemy not to encourage and build up the kingdom of God but to destroy it. He is one who twists that which is the very things that God wants to promote. He is a destructive force. If we don't believe he exists or are aware of how he works, we're in trouble. It's like having an enemy that's undercover that attacks us without warning. I don't mean to be morbid, but I want to just share with you clear examples. We see it when we see something like 9-11 happen. When people are going to work thinking that this is just going to be a day's work and that at the end of the day all hell breaks loose and hundreds and thousands of people are killed. That's the devil. That's evil. We see it in the Boston bombings. We see it in Santa Barbara last week. Let's take Santa Barbara's situation even a little bit further. A young man who was not, if if any of you you are up with the story of this young man that went on the campus and killed six other people and then killed himself, he was deluded into thinking that what he wanted was being held back by other people. And since he couldn't have what he wanted, that he needed to kill the people that were keeping him from having what he wanted. 
And as a result, probably a well, a nice young man in his, in his right mind, believing the lies and the selfishness of his own pursuits, allowed himself to be used by the enemy to become a monster of death and destruction. We live in a world that's tainted and, and infused and filled with the hatred and the evil of the devil. I was sitting at, at a restaurant last week before the sermon, and I asked the, the person who waited on me, do you believe in the devil? <laughs> she was like, well, it's nice to meet you this morning. Uh, it's not a normal, normal question that I get. Uh, she kind of looked at me. She gulped. She said, um, I said, don't worry. You don't, it's not a right or wrong answer. I'm a pastor of a church. I'm just preparing a message, and I'm just interested in if you believe in the devil. She said, well, I don't think I really believe in the devil. She said, I, I, she said but I believe in hell. I said, oh, really? Well, what's hell then, if there's no devil? He said, well, hell is this world. Hell is places in this world. And then, of course, at, right at that time, as the TV screen on the TV screen came up, the Santa Barbara shooting. So people are wrestling with what they are experiencing that feels like hell, but they don't realize that we have an enemy that wants to, pr- to promote the wickedness and the destruction that hell is in itself. We need to be aware of our enemy. And one of the first things that Nehemiah had to do with the people of Israel is to, um, well, one of the first things that happened is that they were aware of their enemy. It wasn't hard for them to know their enemy, but he had to convince them that they could overcome their enemy. And I want to go there for just a second. In the Old Testament, oftentimes the enemy, enemies of God, as people were, uh, as, as the children of Israel were worshiping and living for uh, the one true God that we worship today, the enemies of God, um, the way that they would respond as enemies was to destroy or to kill. To kill. There was warfare. There was literal fighting that took place. And so there was the defending of your people for what you believed in, and then there was the attacking of other people if they didn't believe uh, the way you did or they possessed land that you wanted to possess. There was literal... Um, uh, Bloodshed that happened in the Old Testament in regards to your enemy. But when Jesus came, he changed the rules, didn't he? He changed the way that we see people, and he brought into focus the clarity of who our real enemy is. Because our real enemy is not a a people that don't believe like us. Our real enemy is not people who don't receive us or accept us. Our real enemy is Satan himself that deceives people from knowing and understanding the one true God and experiencing the love that he has for them. So that when we think about our enemies, we don't think about beating up our enemies, killing our enemies, putting our enemies down. And oftentimes I even think that within the church, one of the greatest tragedies that we walk in as people is that we take our ideas and we beat up people with them in a spirit of anger, a spirit of judgment, a spirit that is not filled with grace. Matthew 5 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the kingdom of God that we live in. Ephesians six ten through 18 Paul talks about this spiritual warfare that we're talking about. He says in verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where we're fighting. We're fighting in that realm with warfare that's in this world, but it's spiritual warfare. It is not human warfare. It's not guns and bullets. It's prayers and love. It's righteousness and noise. We're going to talk about that in a second. Don't get me going. So therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. So stand firm then. Do you recognize a word that he keeps on saying? Stand. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one of Satan. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. What is the gospel that Jesus Christ died for us so that we might be forgiven and set free in no eternal life? for which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. What do we see in Ephesians that equates to Nehemiah? That we should be aware of the enemy, that we should stand our ground, that we should think right, that we should live right, that we should do right, that we should speak the right things of God. Stand your ground. In Nehemiah 4, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry, he ridiculed, he threatened... They, they threw insults, verse 3. In verse 4, the people cried out, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults on their heads. Give them over to the plunder of their land of captivity. Do not cover up. So they are, they're praying these prayers of, of help to God. God, help us. In verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. You have been hitting it hard, and we have too at the river. Prayer, 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 prayer is our first, it's our first line of uh, engaging the enemy. It's our second, fifth, tenth, hundredth, and last line. We are to be a people of prayer. I think you've been praying at the end of all of your services. But also, we act with God in our prayers. We don't just pray, but we work with Him. We give ourselves fully to the things of God. In our church, we, the first week, talked about rebuilding our personal walls, and we talked about... Uh, we went first to that place of repentance. God, where have our walls fallen down um, in our lives as a result of sin? And so God began to convict people of different things that were going on in our life. And we, we called out and we said, God, please forgive us, corporately and personally. Please forgive us for the ways in which we've allowed the walls to fall in our life and allow the enemy to traffic in our life. But if we just pray a prayer and we don't, Stay attentive to building that wall, whatever that wall is in your life that you're rebuilding in the area of holiness and obedience to God. If we just say, oh God, I can't believe that I've done that and please forgive me. And that's heartfelt. But we don't then also begin to and continue to work on those walls in our life through prayer, through studying of the Word of God, through being accountable with different people, through actually doing the opposite of what sin was in our life. Then we are not continuing to work with all of our heart to fulfill what God has called us to do and to build that wall in our life. My challenge and question to you is, what has God called you personally 
and corporately to, to continue to give your hard work and wholeheartedness to that you have stopped being wholehearted about. It could be in the area of your personal life. It could be in the area of serving other people. It could be in the area of communicating the good news of Jesus. With what is it that God has called you to in his kingdom? That you know that God spoke. You wrote it in your journal. You wept. You, you told it to somebody else. And now as I'm saying it, you're like, oh, I've gone back to allowing that wall to be fallen in my life. I want to encourage you to get back up and begin to build again. We need to think right. We need to think right. So the, so the enemies are mocking. They're telling them how they're not going to make it. They're telling them it's not going to happen. Um, and then in verse 13, Nehemiah says, Therefore I stationed some people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. I, I posted them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I see the great general riding out on his horse in front of his troops and saying, don't back down. I see Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas coming forth and saying, let's go get them. Fight. Fight. And that is the word of God to you and me. We have an enemy. Are we just going to sit back and let him pluck us off? Are we going to just sit back and let him destroy our families? Are we just going to sit back and let him destroy our culture? Are we going to stand up with the word of God and proclaim it boldly? Are we going to stand up with right living and right thinking and, and declare to the world that God is real and he has transformed this life? Are we going to fight? Are we going to fight? But we first are going to fight when we are encouraged to fight. It said in that passage of Scripture that they started to get weighed down. They started to get weary from the load and the burden. They started listening to the lies of the enemy and they were afraid. And how many of you know that when you're afraid and when you're tired, you give up? You give up. When you give way to the weariness of this life and you don't have a goal in mind, when you get overwhelmed with the lies of, oh, you can't make it or you can't do it, we give up. Can I tell you that I have been at the give up about a thousand times in my life? I, I, I used to say this in some of my hearts. I mean, when, I, when things got rough for me, I would think, you know what? I really just want to be a sports broadcaster. I, I, just, I just want to call the Red Sox games. That's really all I want to do. You can have the church. You can do it. Devil, you can have the church is what I was saying. You can have this calling. I just want to be free from the weariness and the fear and the discouragement of my life. And God said, Sean, you can do it. But you know how, you know how God said, Sean, you can do it? Through you. Through John Clark coming up to me and saying, Sean, you're a man of God. I'm so proud of you. You can do it. From my wife saying, honey, don't give up. I love you. It's for your family. Keep on fighting. From from different ones saying, Sean, you can make it. Nehemiah prophetically spoke into his people's lives and said, don't listen to the enemy. Listen to me. You can fight. God is on our side. Many of you in this room are called to be Nehemiahs to one another. When's the last time you got up into somebody's face in your life who is discouraged and down and overwhelmed and said, in grace, in truth, you can make it. You can make it. 
You can make it. We can make it. Let's make it together. That's what Nehemiah was doing. He was saying, we can make it in the power of God. He was giving them focus. And what was the greatest focus that he said? What was the the prime motivation? Oftentimes when we need to be motivated, we need to be motivated by what's most important. And he said, fight for your families. Fight for those you love. I have a whole message on fighting for your families. I preached it, preached it quite a bit of it last week. I'm not going to preach it this morning. I really want to, but I'm not. But you can get online and listen to that part of the message at the River Church. But I, I felt like I was supposed to move on. But just know that it is critical that we fight for our families. Literally, I'm talking about your sons and daughters, moms and dads. And how do we fight for them? We model what it looks like to live for God. We train them and we love them. We love them with the heart that God has. Not with rules, because rules without relationship lead to rebellion. But we, we, we fill them with the love and encouragement of God and put faith and hope and belief in them. We fight for our families. How do we defeat the enemy? We do it through right living And we also do it through rallying for one another. Look at verse 16. From that day on, half of the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. And those who carried materials did their work with one hand, held their weapon in the other. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and we're spread out and we're all widely separated from each other along the wall. Verse 20. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. They rallied for one another in their time of need. One of the things that marks the church more than anything else is that we are a people that consider others more important than ourselves. That are willing to lay down what is our right or our pleasure so that we can help and serve other people. The first illustration that came to my mind when I was reading this as a corporate expression is CFCF and how you rallied around us as a church when we started the river. When we started the river, we sent out 30... The CFCF sent out... 35 adults and 15 kids to the river. They sent out, not long after that, about 20 people to Tempe. They sent out another 10 people to Indonesia. Not just people, but you sent out leaders. You sent out the front rows of this church to help Waltham, to help Tempe, to help Indonesia. You sowed the very best of your friendships and your, and your families to other communities because you were rallying around the, the, the concept that it's not just this area that needs Jesus, but other parts of our city need Jesus. Other parts of our nation need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And you gave your people, you gave your friends, you gave your leaders, and you gave your resources to see that happen. You rallied for the things of God and you gave it generously. Not only did you just give your, your people, but for the river... Over half of the money that we, we got to buy the building that is located in, in, in Waltham that serves the River Church and serves the movement, but primarily serves the church there, came out of your sacrificial giving as a church here at CFCF. Over half of the down payment for our building was your money. That is amazing. That is amazing that... 
out of your need. You're here, you're here in a gym. This is year 15, I think, now of the gym. You're here in a rented space, and you said, you know what, we're not just going to let that money sit in a bank account, but we're going to give it to something now, something present, and we're going to rally with our brothers and sisters in Waltham. Absolutely sacrificial. Didn't come without praying and, and, and wrestling and, and, and uh, 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 wisdom, and, and, but you did it. And I just want to say thank you for rallying on our behalf. But you do it all the time as people. When people are sick, you gather together to fast and pray. When people are in financial need, I have seen you over and over again give sacrificially, not only with written checks, but with groceries showing up on porches, with clothes showing up in cars. This is the sign of the church that we rally. When babies are born, we supply meals. When we are sick, you pray. When there's needs, we give financially. When, you, when we're lonely, you visit. We are a rallying people. And lastly, right speaking. <clears throat> As the men of Jerusalem worked, they also were alert with their swords. They were pre- prepared in season to take on the enemy. Today, when we read Ephesians 6, when we read, read, read in Ephesians, Paul talked about the sword. The swords that we carry now are not literal swords, but they're swords of the Spirit. They're swords of the words of God. They're swords of the prayers of God for the people that are desperately in need of Jesus. And why do we pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests? Because we want to defeat the devil and rescue people from hell. Amen? Can we just be honest? That's what we're about. We're not about having a great Christian community. Can I just say that? Even though I just said that, that's awesome. But we're not about just doing that. That is a picture of a transformed life of Jesus. But I couldn't be that kind of person if Jesus hadn't rescued me and set me free. I couldn't be a person that wants to uh, stop watching a baseball game and put down my beer to go over and pray for somebody or go and help somebody in a time of need because I would care less about that person because it's about me. I wouldn't have those kind of thoughts or feelings or community compassion if I didn't have Jesus. But forget about if even if I was the kindest and most giving person without Jesus, I would still be rebellious in my heart towards the living God and I would still be lost without hope if I hadn't known the love and heard about and received the love of God through the spoken word, through the testimony of people whose lives were changed and as a result found my own set person set free. This is why Jesus came. The reason the Son of God, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. This is why he died on the cross. To destroy the works of the enemy in your life. How many of you have had the works of the enemy destroyed in your life? I hope a lot of you can say, me! I was once addicted and God set me free. I was once so arrogant and proud, but God set me free. I was once so lonely and hopeless, but God set me free. I once was without vision and God set me free. I could go on and on and on. I was once in a broken family, came from a divorced home. Was Whatever your story, I know that there's a hundred stories in here that you were there and then Jesus came along in your life and destroyed the works of the devil 
healed you and set you free. This is our story. Jay in our church, Easter, one year ago, walks in from a hip-hop concert that he was performing in, comes in with, with um, the effects of that evening as a request or an honor of his mom, walks into the service, is struck by the cross in the center aisle, is a little taken back by the worship, hears the message, and the part in the message where the scripture was read about the two thieves on the cross, and one um, ridiculing him, and one saying, Jesus, will you please save me? He, he, he heard that story, and he said, I am like that criminal on the cross, and I need Jesus. I see something working in his eyes. I walk over after the service. I introduce myself. He says, dude, what's going on here? In a total Jayism. I'm like, man, it's Jesus. He said, man, I don't know what's happening, but I, I, something is happening in me. And I said, Jesus wants to save your life. And he, right in the middle of that aisle, prayed a prayer and got saved so that one year later he's standing up at Easter service with the mic tilted like this. And he's giving us a spoken word rap piece where he's talking about how Jesus penetrated his world, rescued him from his sin and depravity, pulled him out of his, his rap connections and everything that was going on in that world. He's still preaching Jesus in that world, but he's a transformed dude. And Jesus set him free. This is what we're talking about, but it doesn't come unless we live right, do right, and preach the gospel with clarity and with life. As the band comes, back, comes up, I'd like to conclude um, with some thoughts for us to respond to. In this passage, we see, see uh, both passages in Nehemiah and then also in Ephesians. We see that there's an enemy. We see that this enemy's desire is to speak lies, to bring fear, to bring discouragement, to overwhelm us. And if we listen... And if we respond to the enemy, we stop building. We stop growing. We stop responding. But if we stand our ground and start thinking right, start living right, start speaking right, the enemy of God is defeated. Amen. Would you stand up with me? Father, we ask that you would do a a freeing work in our lives this morning. It might be that we come here this morning and um, just the mention of Satan, just the mention of devil, the devil um, caused something to rise up, the, the hairs on the back of our neck to, to stand up. We, we don't like to talk about him. We don't like to give um, uh, voice to the thought that he is alive, but he is. And it might be that some in the room, as, as we talked about being aware of his of his reality, there was fear that came on their life. Not only is he real, but maybe the, the powers that he possesses to deceive and lie are working in me. Maybe that's what somebody was thinking. Maybe some of you are thinking that. And maybe that where you've been trapped, that you can't be free. That you can't be free from that power that is operating in your life. Or at least that's what you believe. And I just want to declare that that is a lie. That is deception. 
and that has no power in comparison to the truth of God. There is no weapon that the enemy possesses, the scripture says, um, that's forged against you, that's used against you, that can prosper. Greater is Jesus that lives within us than he who is in the world. In every place where you feel like that you're trapped, Jesus is saying, come to me. I want to break those chains. I want to refute those lies. And I want to be the one who defeats your enemy. So that might be you. And I just want to speak to those of you in the room that are, that have, are wrestling with that, that place of the enemy's power in your life, but also your desire to be free. I just want to pray for you right now. Lord, would you right now stir faith within ones, twos, tens, twenties, however many there are in this room that feel as if they can't get out from underneath the power of the enemy. I pray that you would begin to speak faith and truth into their minds and their hearts right now. That they would have courage to reach out their hand, their, their, their life to you and say, Jesus, I need you to help me break free. So as we respond here in a moment, it might be that you walk forward and you say, grab somebody by the hand and you ask them to pray with you be delivered from the power of the enemy. It might be that some of us need to um, go back to the place that God has already spoken and you need to respond by faith to keep on doing what God has called you to do. It might be that you need to re-up your commitment to what the Lord has already spoken to you. It might be that you're thinking of somebody right now that you need to encourage not to give up. It might be that you need to leave your seat and go and pray with somebody and speak words of life into them because you know they're going through a hard time. Maybe, they're, maybe you know that they might be being deceived by the thoughts that they're thinking. Whatever it is, let's let the Spirit of God minister to us and move through us as we respond. I'm assuming that these carpets are still safe places to come and kneel and to pray and that we'll have prayer teams that will be here to pray with you if you need someone to agree with you. Let's respond in the next few minutes as God begins to minister.